Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I think that people inherently have a place of knowing inside of them that somehow um, the other voices got much louder. And that, that voice is so quiet they can't hear it. And so I think my job in a lot of ways is to help them to get to that place of knowing, to go back to that place so that they can figure out what is right for them. You are listening to Lori Gottlieb on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. If you or someone you know is currently struggling with anxiety, worry, or stress during these really tough times in 2020, you can go to my website to get the first three chapters of my book, Be Mighty, for free. Just go to www.jillstoddard.com and sign up for my email list. I will never spam you. I just send a newsletter about once a month. And if you sign up, we will send you the introduction of the first two chapters and you can check it out and see if you think it might be helpful to you. And if you order Be Mighty from my website, I will also send you a free journal to be able to do the exercises that are provided in the book. Hey, everybody, before we get started today, just wanted to give a little sound quality warning. When Yael and I were recording the introduction to this episode, my air conditioner turned on, unbeknownst to me. So there is a whir in the background during the introduction, but it does go away as soon as the introduction is over and you will have clean sound for the remainder of the episode. So hang in there and enjoy this episode. I'm here with Yael today to introduce our episode with Lori Gottlieb, the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And if you're a therapist who's listening, you have probably read this book because this book has just absolutely rocked the therapy world. And it was truly exciting, I think, for all of the co-hosts to have Lori on the show. And there are so many juicy tidbits in here. And I think what I love the most is that whether you're a therapist or not, you really get this inside look into the world of therapy. And one of the things that I appreciated most that Lori was talking about was the way that she chose to include herself as a therapy client in this book, because she felt like it would be disingenuous to write about her clients and not write about herself. And what it made me think about was when I first became a therapist and started asking clients to do exposure work, which is facing your fear. And I felt like I had my own little hidden secret that I had all these fears that I wasn't equally facing. And I started doing my own exposures right from the beginning of graduate school. I I went to Six Flags with a friend and classmate and did some Ferris wheel exposures to get over my fear of Ferris wheels. And I now have a print in my office of a Ferris wheel that sort of signifies doing that work. And so I really related to Lori on that point. And I think there were just so many other relatable 
parts of this interview. And I'm curious, Yael, what stuck out to you? Yeah, I loved her book. I gobbled it up and I have been talking about it with therapist colleagues for so long. And there's so many elements that just really speak to my soul. But one of them, I think, is this sort of vulnerability of being a therapist, that we're sort of in this position of presenting ourselves as having a lot of confidence in how to navigate uncharted territories, our own as well as other people's. And there's just such an honesty that she brings to discussing that we often don't know. We have sort of skills and tools that can help us push through, but that sometimes we also don't know. And it it reminds me of one of the first clients that I ever saw in graduate school. I just remember sitting there and thinking to myself, maybe you should go see someone. And then I thought, oh wait, no, that's supposed to be me. And I think there is this lore, even within therapist circles, that we're supposed to, you know, be really confident. And and I just love her vulnerability. And I think that's in a way really useful for clients because it's not like anybody has the answers. And I, I find myself more and more the longer that I'm in this career sharing, disclosing with people that, you know, I struggle too. So like when I'm doing communication training with a couple, I'll say, you know, this is really hard. I do this for a living and I still get called out all the time by my spouse for not being a good listener, for shutting down, for, you know, thinking emotionally instead of um, really opening myself up to what he has to say. And so I think so many parts of this just really normalize the experience of being human, you know, walking through life in in ways that nobody else has ever experienced before. And the stories are just so relatable of the patients that she describes and as well as her own story. Yeah, they really are. And, And she talks about how they appear to be so different, but at the heart, there's a lot of similarity. And I know that one of the things I also really appreciate about this book, and I believe was one of her intentions, is to try to reduce the stigma that does still exist around mental health treatment and psychological struggles. And, you know, I'm noticing a a push on social media now where therapists are talking about when they saw their therapists, you know, and similar to what you're talking about, disclosing, like, we're human beings, too. And, This isn't a situation where I am well and I have all the answers and you are ill and I need to fix you. And I do think there was some level of of seeing things that way in the past, and that's really changing. And I think part of what changes it um, is books, like maybe you should talk to someone. And Lori also now has a brand new podcast called Dear Therapist. Uh, That's excellent. They just dropped their their second episode. So for people who want to get more of her, she's out there in that way, too. And I think it's just it was such a gift to have her on the show. And I think she's just lovely. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Lori Gottlieb. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I am beyond thrilled to introduce my guest for today, the amazing Lori Gottlieb. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is being adapted as a television series. 
In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. Her recent TED Talk is one of the top 10 most watched of the year. A member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind and advisor to the Aspen Institute, she is a sought-after expert in media such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. Her new iHeartRadio podcast, Dear Therapists, produced by Katie Couric, brings counsel to listeners' ears. Lori, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So let's dive right in. I am a huge fan. I love all of your writing. I've read a number of your articles, and I absolutely fell head over heels for maybe you should talk to someone. I loved the back and forth between your story, your client stories, and even the teachable moments that you put in to kind of just talk about therapy or therapists in general. It was seamless and so well done. And I really loved the vulnerability that you brought to this book, you know, admitting to the deep internet dive you took into your own therapist. I mean, it was all just very real, very funny, very relatable. And I'm curious, of all the many, many clients I'm sure you've seen over the years, how did you choose these main clients to focus on in your book? What was special about them and their stories? Right. So just for people who haven't read it, the book follows um, pretty much four main patients, and there are others sprinkled throughout. And then there's a fifth patient in the book, and the fifth patient is me (laughs) as I go through my own struggle with my own therapist. And, um, you know, one of the things that was really important to me in choosing the stories that I would be telling in this book was that I wanted people to be as surprised as I am as a therapist. So I think that when, when people come in, you have a certain idea about who they are. And inevitably, as you get to know them, you start to feel all kinds of different things about this person. And you start to see how similar you are to even people who seem very, very different from you. And so I really feel like one of the themes of the book is that we're all more the same than we are different. And so I chose people who look very, very different on the surface in terms of age and gender and the problem that they're struggling with and their family histories and their personalities. And, you know, as you start to get to know them, you start to see, wait a minute, I find a piece of myself in every single one of these people. Mm, I love that. That's so true. I hadn't picked up on that, but that makes perfect sense. I know all therapists are dying to know this part, and a good chunk of our audience are other mental health professionals. How did you go about handling the confidentiality issues and, you know, getting permission from these folks? I know you, I'm sure, disguised some information, but how did you handle that that part of the situation? Right. Well, first of all, part of that was in the selection process, meaning that I was very careful about who I would ask permission from, meaning there might have been a a particular case that I wanted to include in the book, but I felt like asking that person would be problematic for them clinically. I didn't didn't include anybody that I was currently seeing, just to be clear. So Mm -hmm. there was no, that would be just blurring so many boundaries that I, I wouldn't be able to do that. But I think when I was thinking about, you know, what cases did I want to include, For example, somebody who I knew had a tendency to people please, I didn't want to ask that person because I felt like that person would just say yes, even if that person felt like she didn't want the story in, because that's something that we had worked on a lot. And in other cases, I think, you know, somebody who like always wanted to be my favorite patient, you know, that would not be a good person to ask because they would somehow read into this you know, this kind of fantasy that they had about being my favorite patient. So I was careful about who I chose. And then of course, you know, I asked permission and I had to change all the identifiable details, anything that you can Google. As you know, there's a, as you said, there's that scene in the book where I Google stock my own therapist. So (laughs) there's a lot that you can find on the internet. And so I had to be really careful and I really wanted to honor these people and make sure that everything that was written about them, even those moments that, you know, (laughs) <laughs> were not the most flattering because we all have those that they were they were treated with with absolute respect. Yeah. And so did you run any of this by them before it went to print? Did you no. have to get permission after the fact? I did not. Um, you know, these are people who trusted that I I mean, don't don't forget I was a writer long before I was a therapist. So people who come to me 
have read generally have read something that I've written, you know, maybe it's a profile in the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever it might be. And they've seen that I've incorporated material from the therapy room into my work. And I think that they trusted that I would handle it well. I also have in my informed consent before anybody even steps into my office that I can write about anybody as long as I disguise their identities. And so I didn't feel like that was enough permission just because the, you know, this really goes into their lives in a deep, deep way. So I got additional permission in this case. Mm-hmm. But I didn't I didn't want them to read it in advance because I wasn't going to have them sort of edit their stories with me. It was my telling of the story. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the greatest things about this book, and I think I saw you say somewhere maybe on Twitter recently that part of the reason that you wrote the book was to try to reduce some of the stigma around mental health and mental health treatment. And, you know, even successful therapists get their own therapy. And I think one of the critical elements is how incredibly honest you were about your own experiences. But this is obviously a shift, right? Like therapists usually keep their private lives private. That's really different. How does it feel for you now to know that your current clients know so much about you and about your personal life? And what kinds of things did you take into consideration as you were deciding what or how much to reveal in the book? Well, it's really funny because as you know, from reading the book, this wasn't the book I was supposed to be writing. So originally I'd written this piece for the Atlantic called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness Might Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. And that piece went viral in a very big way. And publishers wanted me to write that book. And I felt like I did not want to write that book. I felt like I said what I wanted to say in the piece. And I also felt like I was really interested in what was going on with the adults. I remember at the time the New Yorker said something about all the overparenting books that were out. And they said, um, another parenting book at this point would just be cruel. (laughs) You know, it's like, you want to calm parents down and all we do is make them more anxious. You know, so I I didn't want to do that. And I said, I'm really interested in what's happening with the adults. And they said, oh, you want to write a happiness book? I said, no, I don't want to write a happiness book, but you know, I'll make it my own. And, And it was really hard because it turned out they really did want a happiness book. And so ironically, the happiness book was was making me miserable. (laughs) I always said it was the miserable depression inducing happiness book and I couldn't get myself to write it because it, it wasn't meaningful to me. I feel like happiness as a byproduct of living your life in a meaningful way is what I think we're all striving for. But happiness as a goal in and of itself is a recipe for disappointment. And so I, I couldn't get myself to do that. And so I ended up canceling that book contract and, um, and deciding, you know what, I have the privilege every day of going in and seeing the human condition and seeing life as it really happens. And to me, that is so inspiring and interesting, far more interesting than any of these other topics. And so I said, I want to bring people into that world. And so originally I thought, well, I'll, I'll write about these stories, but then I thought it feels disingenuous to not write about what was going on with me at the same time. And I say at the very beginning of the book that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that Mm -hmm. I use my humanity to help other people. I don't think anybody wants to go in and see a robot or see like the blank slate, right? I don't -hmm. don't disclose things about myself in the therapy room. I don't mean that. But I mean that I'm, I'm very human in the room as we all should be. And so when I decided to write this book, everyone said, oh, it's not commercial. People aren't going to read it like, you know, the, the happiness book or the, or the kid book, right? The parenting book. But I, I didn't care because I thought, well, if three people read this book, but it, it helps them to change and grow and I say what I want to say, then that's fine with me. And so I turned in my first draft and I, and I just let it rip because I'm like, three people are going to read this. So who cares? I'm going to be really, <laughs> really, you know, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to write what I want to write in the most authentic way. And I turned in the book to the publisher and they just went crazy for it. They were like, I laughed, I cried, I saw myself in every single person. I, you know, it really resonated with them. And so I thought, oh, maybe 300 or 3000 people might read this. Maybe I should clean myself up a little bit. <laughs> um, but I didn't. And I think, you know, that the book has spent more than a year already on the New York Times bestseller list. And I think that the reason that so many people are reading it and are responding to it and are seeing themselves in it is because I didn't clean myself up. 
So I think that I think that that's where the vulnerability is really important where we can say, hey, we're so afraid to take off the mask, but look what happens when we do. We realize Mm -hmm. that we are all connected, that we are not alone. A hundred percent. And I think we need that more than ever right now. And, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this now, because of course, being in this global pandemic where so many of us are working from home and as therapists, you know, this is really the first time that we as therapists are truly going through the same thing that our clients are going through. And it's the first time in therapy where my clients are asking me all the time, how are you? You know, not the superficial, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? But they know that I'm going through this really hard thing too, and they want to make sure I'm okay. And I know that I can't say, oh, I'm fine. How are you? Because they know it's disingenuous. And so it's really required, you know, kind of letting go of some of those rules that were sometimes taught in school. Um, And to be more real and to be more human and to go ahead, like, I know they care and they want to really know for real how things are for me and for my family. And, And I think it has done much more good than harm for sure. I've noticed a greater closeness. I mean, it's the common humanity, like you say. Yeah, I think there's sort of a leveling that's happened because of COVID mm-hmm. where you know we're we're all doing this from our real environments, right? Our home environment. Yeah. So for the first time we're seeing inside their homes, they're seeing inside ours. Um and and I think that that, that kind of humanizes the interaction more than maybe it does in an office, even if you make your office feel very warm and welcoming. And I think the other piece of it is that, um, you know, I think as a therapist, you learn how to be real and how to how to be human with someone without crossing those lines into, and now we're friends and we're having chit chat, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when people ask, how are you? You can give an honest answer, but you're not going to give the same answer to your client that you give to your friend. It's, there's a right. there's certainly a difference there. Right. There are still boundaries. They've maybe just shifted a little bit in this current reality. I mean, I loved the article that you just wrote. I think it was called The Toilet is the New Couch. <laughs> yeah, in the New York talking, Times. Right. Yeah. And talking about how, you know, you have clients who are doing their therapy sessions from their bathrooms because it's the only place they can get privacy. And I'm noticing the same thing, but mine are often in their cars, not driving, just sitting in their driveways in their cars. Yep. I've um, had that. I've had people in their closets, uh, people yeah. in their cars, um, people, yeah, on the toilet. That What I said in that New York Times piece was that, you know, this woman was was sitting on the toilet with the seat down and so that she could have privacy. And she was, her mother was in a nursing home and there was a confirmed case of COVID there and she was crying hysterically. She was so worried her mother was going to get sick and die. And she accidentally in the middle of sobbing leaned back and um, flushed the toilet with her elbow. <laughs> and, and it was this, and all of a sudden you hear this like whoosh and it surprised both of us. <laughs> And, and it was a very funny moment. And I was afraid to laugh because of what she was talking about. And she said to me, am I the only person who does this, you know, from, from the toilet? And I said, no, the toilet has become the new couch. And I immediately <laughs> regretted that because it felt very glib given what she was talking about, but she laughed. And then I laughed because I think laughter is contagious. And at the end of the session, she said to me, you know, everything, you know, you said today was really helpful, but what mattered the most to me was that we laughed together. That's what helped the most. It reminded me of who I was before all this happened. And it reminded me of who I still am and who I'm going to be when we emerge from this. And I think Ugh. those moments that you, you know, you have them in different ways in your office, but something like that never would have happened in the office in exactly the same way. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's another example too of, you know, kind of learning by experience that it's okay to break some of those, and I'm doing air quotes, not that anyone can see me, but you know, some of those therapy rules that we learn. And you talk about those in the book too. You talk about, um, you know, your therapist, Wendell, throwing the tissue box at you and you talk about eating food with the client, John. Yeah. Um, Right. And like, how do you go about deciding, you know, what the rules are, what rules to to so-called break and when to break them? Or do you think these things just kind of happen organically? Like you use your clinical judgment in the moment? 
Well, I think you always have to use your clinical judgment. I think that being a therapist is a little bit like learning to be a concert pianist, right? So you have to learn the scales or not a concert pianist, but becoming like a pianist who improvises, right? So you have to, you learn the scales, you learn everything perfectly, you know, you learn the technique, but then once you have the technique down, that gives you the frame from which to improvise. Mm -hmm. And so I think the same thing with therapy is that you're trained in a certain way, but you're not just going to do therapy like that. Now, once you have that training, once you have that framework, you know the scales, you know you know all the rules, you know how it works, then you can improvise in a responsible and intentional way. I think that people really need to think about why are they doing what they're doing in that moment. So what I really loved about seeing my therapist going to Wendell, and Wendell's kind of this quirky, unconventional guy who's not unboundaried. He's just quirky. So, you know, it's not like he's sitting there talking about his life or disclosing things, but he very much brings his whole personality into the room in a way that is so effective. And that was one of the things that I really learned. It was like I was going to therapy with him. And at the same time, I felt like I was getting great training, just being a patient of his. And so I would literally go from his office to my office and I would sometimes, you know, almost like Cyrano, you know, try something that he tried, but make it my own. And he really taught me a lot about, because I I had much less experience at the time that I went to him. He was a much more seasoned therapist than I was. I came to this as a second career. And so I really sort of got my footing uh, through that. And I really feel like I, you know, I think we, we all learn all the time as therapists and we grow and evolve. And I think that that was a a real wake up call for me about, oh, this is what good therapy can look like. Yeah. It is interesting as a therapist in therapy, you know, I often think about how did what you learned in therapy kind of shift the way you do your own clinical work? And I think my experience has been the same that What I learn about myself in therapy isn't necessarily the thing that changes how I am as a therapist. It's seeing my therapist as a therapist and saying, ooh, these are the really effective ways of being or doing that I would like to model myself. Is that basically what you're saying with Wendell? I think for me, it was both. I mean, I think that certainly learning more about myself makes me a better human in all realms of my life. But I also think that one of the things that new therapists struggle with is this idea of, on the one hand, they feel like they don't know anything because they don't. Um, <laughs> and on the other hand, there's my, my very first session is actually, and maybe you should talk to someone where um, this woman comes in and she's, you know, crying hysterically. I'm, you know, like 30 seconds into the session and she starts sobbing hysterically. I've never sat in a room with a client before. This is my internship. And I don't even know, do I look at her so that she knows I'm with her? Do I look away so that she doesn't feel like I'm like the stranger is staring at her as she's sobbing hysterically? And I don't even know about what, because I don't know anything about this person yet. You know, just things like that. You know, what is it like to sit a few feet away from somebody who's sobbing hysterically that you've never met before? And how do you sit with them through that? What does it mean to be present for them? And then, you know, in the end of that session or in the middle of that session, at some point in that session, I realize, like, I keep looking at the clock because I want to make sure that, you know, I'm going to end at 50 minutes. And I don't know yet how to do that. I've never done that before. So I don't know, you know, how do you, how are you present in the session? And also how do you know sort of the rhythm of the session? And so, you know, kind of when it's going to end and you have a sense of where you are in the, in the trajectory of the session. And she's talking and talking. I keep looking at the clock and I realize the clock hasn't moved. And I think, (laughs) oh no. And I realize the battery is out in the clock. This is my very first session. There are no cell phones in the room. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do. And then at a certain point she looks up and she says, oh, this went so fast. Is it over already? And I look to where she's looking and she's looking somewhere behind my head. And I turn around and on the wall behind me, I've never sat in that particular room before either. There's a clock (laughs) and she had been looking at it the whole time and I didn't even know it was there. So, you know, when when you first start out, you really don't know anything. So there's that. And then I think there's also the sort of false self that takes over, which is that false confidence that I think you want to bring in, like I'm a therapist, right? Um, I think it's certainly when you start your private practice, maybe you feel that way a little bit. 
because you've, you've had your training at that point, but you really know mm -hmm. nothing, you know, very little. Um, and so I think that you get to a point in your work where you start to really come into your own and you really, it's, you know, no two therapists are alike. So it's not like going to a cardiologist and like they might run the same tests and they might come up with the same conclusion. Therapists will have a lot of overlap in terms of how they view a case, but really the experience of being in therapy with two different therapists is, is vastly different because of who these people are and what kinds of personality traits they bring into the room and their styles, their personality styles and how they work with patients. And so I think that that's where the confidence comes from now is that, you know, going to therapy with Wendell and, and you know, people can read all about that in, in maybe you should talk to someone really showed me how to find that voice for myself, how to find that own comfort zone for myself. And I really enjoy being a therapist so much more when I, when I come from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's sort of infusing the heart and the art into the therapy and it allows us to be creative. You know, I think we would get burnt out if we just opened a treatment manual and followed it like a recipe for every person. And I don't think that would work very well either. And finding that stride of who you are as a therapist, I think, is also what what makes it really um, fulfilling. Right. As well, a therapist. I mean, there's many things that make it fulfilling, but I think that creative piece of it is a big part of that. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and I think the other thing is I write, and maybe you should talk to someone about how I have this word taped up in my office, ultra-crepidarianism, and it means the habit of giving advice or opinions outside of one's knowledge or competence. And I love that word because it reminds me that people know what they need to do. They just need guidance to figure that out, that I can't tell people what to do. I see a lot of couples in my practice. And sometimes I, I, you know, I know exactly what I would do. I know whether I would stay with that person or not, or I know what I would do given whatever difficulty they have. But maybe that's not the right decision for them or just people making other choices in life, right? So I think that people inherently have a place of knowing inside of them that somehow the other voices got much louder and that that voice is so quiet, they can't hear it. And so I think my job in a lot of ways is to help them to get to that place of knowing, to go back to that place so that they can figure out what is right for them. And, and I think that's the way that we can really help people in the long term. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I want to ask you a little bit about your writing process, if that's okay. You know, I'm someone who who loves to write as well, and I've more recently discovered more personal writing, you know, personal essay memoir type writing. And I find that I learn a lot about myself as I write, you know, the process of writing is, it's like the process of writing kind of includes making sense of what happened. There's a book, I think it's Vivian Gornick called The Situation and the Story. Are you familiar with that book? She, no. she talks, so she talks about the situation as like what happened, the plot. And then the story is like the emotional experience that preoccupies the writer. So like the insights, the wisdoms, it's like, I think she calls it the thing you really came to say. That's funny. So I, I talk in the book about how I'm always listening for the music under the lyrics. And there's a whole chapter about how the presenting problem is generally not really the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, it is similar to that. 
Yeah. And so I talk about how the lyrics are, are sort of, you know, the content of what they come in with. I'm here because of X, Y, or Z. And the music is what is the underlying struggle or pattern that got the person into this predicament in the first place? And, and, and what is that, you know, what is that that we're going to really be exploring in here? Right. And so just like in therapy, the process of talking about it is a big piece of what helps clients figure it out, right? Has that been your experience with writing? Like when you went to write this book, you you already knew what the situation was or what the music was, right? Or the lyrics. I forget which was which in, in the lyrics, your metaphor, yeah. the lyrics. But did you, like, as you were writing, were there things that you learned about yourself as, you know, a woman, a partner, a mom, a therapist, et cetera, as you were writing the book, the process of writing teach you some things? Yeah. I mean, so it's really interesting. My whole TED talk is about this, which is that I feel like when people come in, they're telling me a story. And I feel like, because especially because I have a writing background, I feel like my job as I sit in the therapist chair is really mostly as an editor and I'm helping people, you know, we're all unreliable narrators. And so we all come in and we tell a story in a certain way and we're leaving out entire chunks of the story. We're emphasizing certain parts and the protagonist is going in circles and the, the, the supporting characters are all messed up. And so it's kind of like I'm helping them to revise this faulty narrative. I think that that's true of all of us though. So when I was writing the book, you know, it, what's great about nonfiction is you already know the plot because it's nonfiction. But I think that you discover certain things as you revisit stories at different points in your life. So I was writing about something that happened in the past, and now I'm revisiting it many years later. And as you revisit it, you start to see things that maybe you couldn't see even at the time, even though you thought that you had really processed this. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I really found in writing the book was Every chapter is in conversation with the other chapters. So even though I'm weaving together the stories of all of these different patients, you're following these different stories in, in you know, one chapter will be about this person and then we leave their story and we go to somebody else's story and we come back to the other person's story. Um, they're all thematically related in ways that partly was not even conscious because you start noticing how the threads are connected. So I think that was a really important process. And also not only for me, but for my patients, so many of them, you know, have said in different ways, wow, I really, even though I felt like I really understood things as we, you know, I, I saw things a certain way through our work, I saw it on an even deeper level, just reading about it. Oh, that's really cool. That must be incredibly rewarding for you too, to get yeah, that I feedback. It was almost like a, a different kind of therapy in kind of being able to put those stories on paper and think about them from that perspective. Yeah, that's so great. I love it. I want to ask a couple questions. I was telling you before we started recording that that I think my co-hosts might have been having a little bit of envy that I got to be the one to interview you because we're all big fans. So I wanted to ask a couple questions for them since they don't get to talk to you directly. And so this question is from Debbie, my co-host Debbie. And she said that one of the things that she loved most about your book was how it really reminded her of the power of the therapeutic process and how it can really take time to unfold. And she's noticed in her own work that she'll sometimes feel impatient or discouraged, um, you know, kind of wondering if she's helping her clients enough. So Debbie was wondering if you ever feel that way and what advice you might have for therapists or even clients, but therapists who are feeling stuck or wondering if therapy is even helping. Yeah. Well, first of all, hi, Debbie, <laughs> when you hear this. Um, I... Uh, you know, I have that chapter in the book about a client that I feel really stuck with. And this is the the chapter where this this young woman comes in and she's having difficulty with, um, you know, some relationships and uh, some romantic relationships and then also friendships. And for example, her coworkers go to lunch and they don't stop by her office and ask her to come to lunch too. Yet they're very friendly, you know, around the office, but they don't like actively seek her out to socialize. And there's sort of a, a group that does. And she doesn't sort of understand why that is or what she's 
doing to make people want to keep their distance from her. And of course, we all know that what happens in the therapy room is a microcosm of how people act outside of the room. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I tried all different, I'm very relational in the room. I very much work with the relationship that's going on between me and the client in the room. And so it's not just like people are bringing in like an outside problem of the week and then we're talking about it removed from how this person and I interact. And I think mm-hmm. that's very helpful to have something happen in the moment in the room that they can then take outside because it's very safe and there's far less shame when things happen in the room. So she just, you know, no matter what I tried, um, it just, it failed. And I, I would go to my consultation group every week and I would, I would talk about this and they would give me suggestions and everything I tried would fail. And yet when I would bring up the fact that she was so disappointed with me or felt like I wasn't helping her, she did not want to go see someone else. And so there was this, this kind of catch 22 of, well, you're ineffective, but I don't want to, you know, but I don't want to leave because sometimes you're effective. You know, she'd like throw me a bone. Um, and, uh, eventually I ended up ending treatment with her. And so I think that sometimes it's not the right match or the person isn't ready or I'm not effective enough, whatever it is, but I don't want to waste people's time. So in the book, I was really, it was really important to me to show here are some, here are these, you know, these stories that I want to share with you. Most of the time, you know, as we know, as therapists, most of the time we, we, you know, people are really helped by the work that they come in to do in therapy. And then sometimes it doesn't work. And I wanted to include that case because I felt it was really important to show that, you know, it's not like every single time um, it's going to go swimmingly. Right. Well, and that's certainly validating for both therapists and clients alike to read that. And that just because it doesn't go well with one person doesn't mean it won't go well with another or, or it doesn't mean that you're a bad therapist or that you're a client who's somehow doing something wrong. And I also think it's a good reminder for us as therapists that sometimes we feel so compelled to fix it and help and push and push And, you know, you like wouldn't keep giving someone the same medicine if it, you know, you wouldn't give someone an antibiotic that wasn't actually clearing up their bacterial infection, you would switch their medicine. And I think, you know, we need to remember that it's just as important to recognize when maybe we need to stop, just like you're saying you did, rather than continuing to try to, you know, shove a square peg into a round hole. I think that if if I'm more curious about the client than the client is about him or herself, um, that person is not ready to do the kind of work, at least the kind of work that that I do as a therapist. Maybe they want something different. Maybe they want a coach. Maybe they want, you know, maybe they want something that's different from what I'm offering. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know we're running short on time, so I have one last question, and this one is from my co-host Yael. Okay. Uh, so she had said that she, you know, she loved all the unique narrative arches of the various patients and of course your story as well, but she really felt like she connected with, I don't remember her name, but it was the elderly woman who you talked about who got Rita. the second chance at life. Rita, Rita. Um, and so Yellow was wondering if you could speak to this theme, like why is it never too late to learn to build relationships, to create meaningful work? Um, and what are the ways that even elderly people who might think it's too late could begin again, the way Rita got a second chance, second yeah. lease on life? Yeah. Well, thank you, Yael, for um, giving Jill that question. So I thought it was really important to include Rita because I feel like one of the things that's really important for me when people come into the room is I want to know not just why are they here, but I want to know why now. Why this week, this month, this year, did they decide to pick up the phone and call a therapist when maybe the problem has been going on for a very long time? And so to me, I'm not just looking at what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. I'm looking for readiness. So there was some strength that made them say, I want to go talk to somebody about this, even if they don't even know what they're doing. A lot of people think they're coming in to change other people. You know, like I'm coming in Mm -hmm. because my partner is so problematic. That's why I'm here. (laughs) And then they quickly learn, wait a minute. (laughs) I might have how this works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, um, you know, so, but I, but I think that just the fact that someone called and they said, you know what, I, I really want to understand this better. Something I need to change. I need a change, whatever that change is. 
And I think that's great. So just the fact that they're there is a strength to me. And so you wonder, okay, this woman comes in, she's about to turn 70. She's had some marriages that haven't worked. She has her adult children who are estranged from her because of the way she was as a mother and and the pain that she caused them. And she wants their forgiveness and they won't even talk to her. And I think that, you know, it's apparent that she's kind of looking for the wrong things. But what I really, what really stuck out about her was her loneliness. Like she really Mm -hmm. had no social connections at all. I always wonder when people come in, how are their lives peopled? Her life was not peopled at all. She literally had no one. And so what I thought the work would be, would be about really like bringing her back into the human race. You know, how can she make social connections? And of course you see that what happens is I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but she ends up like having this full life in terms of family, romance, getting back with her kids in certain ways. And not in like a storybook, happy ending way, but in a really realistic way. And I think a way that she never imagined was possible even when she was younger. So I think that for her, it was not too late to change because she was ready to change. She was just so fearful of it. And what what she suffered from was something called cherophobia, which is fear of joy. And we all know clients like that, or just people in the world like that, where they've, they've had such bad experiences whenever they get their hopes up, whenever something feels good. So in her case, like her depressed mother would then, um, you know, be very present, but then she knew it would always go away. So like joy was not pleasurable. It was anticipatory pain because it was going right. to go away. So you can't just- Yeah. So why bother? Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it's not worth the the disappointment, the downfall, right? Mm-hmm. When it when it goes away. And so she did everything in her power to keep joy at bay. And and there were many other things going on, but, um, but I think that I, I really liked sharing that story because it's not an isolated story. There are lots of people like that who come later in life to therapy and they never, because generationally, maybe people didn't really talk about things or therapy they thought was something different from what it actually is. And they didn't get the help that they needed. And they get to a place where they say, wait a minute, I'm really aware of my mortality. I'm really aware. I think, you know, Julie is this young woman in the book who's uh, in her early 30s and she's uh, she comes back from her honeymoon. She ends up having cancer and, and it's, it's about how she asked me to stay with her until she dies. And what Julie does is she kind of holds up that mirror of life has a 100% mortality rate. Most of us don't know how or when we're going to die. And so we need to be really intentional about how we live our lives. Sometimes that doesn't happen for people until they become Rita's age. And they start to say, wait a minute, I, I'm realizing that I don't, I don't know how long I have and I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. And so a lot of people do come to therapy at that age, um, partly because the stigma you know, is different in today's culture than it was when they were younger and partly because they start to become very aware of the limitations of how long we live. Yeah. Being short timers. Um, Yeah. And so I was really, I was really, um, I think people really enjoy Rita's story just because I think it, it holds up a mirror to them and helps them to say, wait a minute, I'm not Rita's age yet, maybe, or maybe they are. Um, but how can I live my life with intention every day? And I think COVID has done that for us too, right? Mm -hmm. Where a lot of us are saying, what are my priorities? Who are the people that are important to me? Who are the people that I don't really need to spend a lot of emotional real estate on? What are the the, um, endeavors and activities and career um, things that I do that I really want to focus on or not focus on? So Mm -hmm. um, I think that we shouldn't need a global pandemic or a cancer diagnosis or um, the idea that we're going to die and our kids will never talk to us again for us to really say, wait a minute, I need to pay attention to my life and be present now. Yeah. And I think that's a good piece of what the book does is, you know, by holding up those other people's stories, it reminds the rest of us that we can think about these things now and make changes now and, you know, be inspired by Rita and have hope because of her story and and the other folks' stories as well. And I am very, very glad that the book didn't only reach three people or 300 people or even 3,000 people and that it's had as much success as it has because it really is wonderful. And I do think the more that is out there, um, you know, and the more celebrities talk about struggling with mental health issues and the more mental health professionals talk about going to therapists, 
the more and more this will be normalized in our culture. And given the tens of millions of people who struggle with anxiety and depression and other issues, you know, it's so, so important. So thank you right. for the work well, you do. Oh, you know, that I, I feel like it's a mission. And I feel like, you know, with my column that I write every week in the Atlantic, I feel like I'm normalizing people's struggles with yeah. the way that I answer, you know, as a therapist, as opposed to, no, don't talk to your mother-in-law. You know, it's not that kind of advice column. Um, and, and, you know, the new podcast that we have coming out next week, it's a podcast that Katie Kirk's producing for iHeart. And my co-host Guy Winch is a fellow therapist like me. He's also done some TED Talks and he's the advice columnist for TED. And of course, I'm the advice columnist for The Atlantic. And we're coming together so that people can hear how two therapists talk about everyday problems and how do we think about them? How do we talk about them? And then, and then we have the guest on and how do we talk to people in real time? And I think that normalizes for just even people who aren't interested in therapy, people who, you know, maybe they've been in therapy, maybe they know someone in therapy, maybe they're um, therapy curious, maybe they're therapy adjacent, maybe they have no interest in therapy, but they mm -hmm. do have interest in the human condition and to hear other people talk through their problems with therapists who, you know, who are talking to them like normal people. And then we give them some suggestions and then they go out and try them. And then they come back and tell us how it went, which I think is the most important part because I feel like as therapists, we want to hold people accountable. It's not just what you come in and do in the therapy room every week. It's what you do in between sessions. What are you doing with this insight? We say insight is the booby prize of therapy because <laughs> yeah, all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. And so right. um, we, we learn a lot, not only from what worked, but also from what didn't work. And so we're really excited to bring the podcast to people too. I'm excited too. I mean, just like the book, it's such a cool, unique idea and format for doing this kind of work. And I think people will get a lot out of it and see how, you know, these therapy processes are maybe not as intimidating as they might think. And I've listened to the the trailer already and have subscribed. So I'm really looking forward to listening when, oh, when we get started. So listeners, you can find out more about Lori's books and articles and talks and the new podcast at her website, lauriegottlieb.com, or by following her on Twitter, which is at lauriegottlieb1, and Gottlieb is spelled G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B. Um, and she's on Instagram at lauriegottlieb underscore author. So Lori, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for talking to us. And, you know, I personally, and I'm sure our listeners too, really look forward to seeing everything else you have coming down the road. Oh, thank you so much for the conversation. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.